uh, from the land of Israel. Verse number three. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria. And by the way, Samaria would be the northern kingdom. And this is where Elisha the prophet was at. And then he said, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And the essence of what this young lady was saying was, if he would get to Israel and he would get to the prophet in Israel, I know that there would be an answer for this leprosy. Verse number four, and one went in and told his Lord, saying, thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And by the way, let me just stop here for a minute and think about this. This young lady was taken captive from her homeland and was made a servant in the house of this individual. This individual has leprosy, and this individual obviously is going to die, and yet this young lady tells uh, Naaman's wife that she believes he can get healed in Israel. I mean, think about that. I don't know that I would want to do that if you took me captive in your house, to your house, to your land. Verse number 5. And the king of Syria, I'm sorry, verse number four. And one went in and said, thus and thus, said to maid, that is of the land of Israel, verse number five. And the king of Syria said, go to go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. And by the way, what you understand here is Naaman is going to go to Israel. His king sent, is going to send a letter to the king of Israel and ask Ask him to do something about this young man's leprosy. But the Naaman is storing up all these valuables because obviously his intentions are to pay for this healing of leprosy or whatever he believes is going to happen. Verse number six. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, now when the, this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. By the way, this king got it wrong, amen? Because the king of Israel wasn't the one that the young lady said he needs to see, amen? Uh, he needed to see the prophet in Israel, not the king in Israel. By the way, government's not gonna do nothing for you here. And so all of a sudden, and, 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 and uh, so this letter comes to the king and he reads it. And verse number seven, we find this. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of leprosy? See, the king understood. I cannot recover this man of leprosy. I'm not God. I can't destroy life and I can't give life goes on to say, wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And so the king of, this king of Israel thought that the other king was just trying to start some trouble. But he wasn't. Verse number eight. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel rent his clothes, that he sent to the king and said, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? And let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and with his chariots and, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Think about this. This man, Naaman, was a big shot. He was a big man. And he came with a very large entourage to see the prophet in Israel. And he gets to his house, the door of his house. And verse number 10 says, and Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times and thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. 
Now this big man comes and, he, and, and he's at the door of Elisha and Elisha doesn't even come out to address this man. Elisha sent a messenger, and by the way, a messenger basically has one thing. He has a message. The message from the prophet was the message from God. Tell this man to go down to the muddy Jordan River and dip himself seven times in that river. And when he comes up, his leprosy will be gone and his flesh will be clean. By the way, when you study the thought of leprosy, most of the time, I don't know, there may be one time or two at the most where it uses the term healing, but always it uses the term cleansing from leprosy. And I believe there's a reason for that because leprosy is a picture of sin and sin needs to be cleansed. He goes on to say, verse number 11, but Naaman was wroth. Naaman was mad. And he went away and said, behold, I thought. By the way, it doesn't matter what he thought. God's message to Naaman was, if you'll do what I tell you to do, you will be cleansed of your leprosy. I thought only hinders you from obeying what God said. How many religious people today are trying to get saved based on I thought? I thought you had to be religious. I thought you had to take communion. I thought you had to be baptized. Your thoughts are keeping you lost. Just simply find out what God says to do and do it and you'll be saved. But Naaman was wroth, he was mad, he went away and he said, behold, I thought. By the way, this is where people get mad, by the way. When you share with them what God says, it contradicts what they think and they get upset about that. That's one of the reasons we have to get them to understand it's what God said, not what we said. Here's what Naaman said. He said, I thought he will surely come out to me. First of all, I'm a big man and I got a big entourage and this man should have had some dignity and respect to come out to see me. By the way, you don't need to see the man. That man is not your answer. The message of that man is your answer. And he was upset. And he thought, I'm going to, he's going to come out here to me and he's going to stand and he's going to call on the name of the Lord, his God, and he's going to strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Let me tell you what Naaman thought. He thought that it was going to be like a miracle thing like Benny Hinn. He thought, no, no, we're going to have a miracle service here. He's going to come out and he's going to call on his God and he's going to strike his hand over the leper. And that's what he was expecting. I don't know where he got the thoughts from, by the way. But that's not how God operated. By the way, let me pause for a moment and say this. I believe in divine healing. I have a problem with divine healers. Amen? Now, verse number 12, notice what he says. Are not Abana and Parfar, or Farpar, rivers of Damascus? Rivers of Damascus are rivers where he came from. He said, are these rivers not better than all the waters of Israel? The rivers where I come from are better than the rivers you have. Here's the problem. You, they might seem to be better, but they're not in the land of Israel. Salvation is of the Jews. You understand that? Salvation doesn't come from Damascus. Salvation comes from the Jews. And so your thought about finding it elsewhere is no, no, no want to help anything. You can't get saved any better way than God's way. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? No. 
You cannot get saved based on what you think. Amen? So he turned and went away in a rage. Look at this. A big mighty man walks away mad. Verse number 13. And his servants. By the way, sometimes it takes humble people to talk some sense into some prideful people. And his servants came near and spake unto him, and they said, My father, and that would be the term of a leader they would refer to him, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst not thou have done it? By the way, ain't that the truth? You tell people, Look, you want to be saved? Just write a check for $10,000, you know, and do that. Oh, sure, yeah. If, if I can have my part in it, where are you, where are you going to put the plaque at, by the way? If it involves you, see, here's the thing. Salvation don't involve you. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. None of you. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. He said, they said to him, you'd have done it if he'd have told you to do some great thing. You know what he's telling them to do? He's telling them to do some humbling thing. That's the implication. If he would have told you to do something that made you look good, you'd have done it. But he's actually telling you something where you got to go down to the Jordan River, and then you got to go down in the Jordan River. You see, going down for prideful people is a hard thing to do. But that's how you got to get saved. You got to give up what you think is saving you in your pridefulness, and you got to humble yourself and count all of that but dung that you might win Christ. Amen? He goes on to say in verse number 13, how much rather than when he said, did they wash and be clean? He just simply said, go dip and be clean. How simple can you get? Look at verse number 14. Then went he down. Listen, he went down in more ways than one. He had to humble himself and submit to God's way of salvation. That has nothing to do with him, but everything to do with God. Amen. Then he went down and he dipped himself seven times in Jordan according to the saying of the man of God and his flesh came again. That sounds like born again, right? Do you have flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child? Yeah, a little child born again. You see, when you get saved, you get born again. Born again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Hearing the word of God, doing the word of God in reference to submitting to God's plan of cleansing. And all of a sudden, you're like a newborn baby. Your flesh is clean. And by the way, the wonderful thing about newborns, they have no past. It don't matter how old you are when you get saved, your sin is gone, 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 gone. And you're like a new babe in Christ. You have no account, Amen. Like a little child, and he was clean. Look at verse number 15. And he returned to the man of God, and he and all his company, and, and came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all of the earth, but in Israel. That's why he needed to get saved there. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Remember all the stuff that he brought? He's saying, Now take this. Look at verse number 16. But he said, as the Lord liveth, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Why would Naaman, why would Naaman, or why would uh, Elisha refuse to take anything from this man? I'll tell you why. He would distort the picture of salvation. 
You know, in this text, in verses 1 to 16, is a great picture of salvation, no doubt about it. By the way, you remember when Naaman said, I, I thought you were going to come and I thought you were going to touch me and put your hand on me and heal me. Listen, when you study all of the scriptures, there's only one person that ever touched a leper and cleansed him from their leprosy. Only one. And his name was Jesus Christ. If Elisha would have touched that man to heal him, he would have ruined the picture. There's only one Savior, not two. One name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Only Jesus can touch the leprosy and cleanse it away. Only Jesus can bring salvation. Amen? And then Naaman's trying to pay for it. Elisha said, can't do it. If I take anything, now he's not saying this, but the illustration would simply be if I took anything, it would look like you paid for your salvation. Salvation is not paid for, not before and not after. Amen? It's for free. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but when you read on, Elisha's servant Gehazi, he's deceptive. And he goes and he catches up with Naaman when he winds up leaving and says, hey, my master wants something from you. And he winds up giving him some things. And you know what happened? The Bible says that Naaman, or actually Gehazi, got the leprosy that was on Naaman. Let me tell you what happened. Salvation is for free. But some people like Gehazi, they want to make money on this. And what they do is they put a price tag to salvation or Jesus Christ. There's religious organizations that'll tell you in order to be saved, there's some things you got to pay for. Amen? They put a price tag on what is for free. Amen? Which is Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful, wonderful picture of salvation. And I hope you, by the way, I hope you understand that. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Jesus took your place on the cross, paid for all your sin on the cross. We're all sinners, we're all lepers and we're all gonna die and be separated from God if we don't get this leprosy taken care of. And Jesus Christ who came to this earth had no leprosy, died on the cross, paid for our sin that we might be clean and saved forever, amen? What a wonderful, wonderful picture. Look at verse number 17, and I want to get into a little something this morning. Verse number 17. This is the thought after salvation. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? Let me tell you what he's asking for. He's asking for enough of Israel's ground that two mules could carry it back to Damascus with him. You see, during this time period, nations would consider gods to be linked to lands. Now, God was linked to Israel, no doubt about it, but he wasn't limited to Israel. They believed that gods were linked to grounds, and the ground of that God, you worshiped him on that ground. And so Naaman said, I'm going back to Damascus, but I know there's only one God, and he's the God of Israel, and I want some of this dirt and some of this land, because when I get back there, I'm going to make sure I'm on that land when I'm worshiping him. Let's read on. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? And here's what I want you to see. For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. I, I, I'm, I'm 
going to take off just for a few moments on the thought of henceforth. Henceforth. I just did a little, just a little topical study on the thought of henceforth. Henceforth, as you probably already know this in the most simplest way, it just means from now on. From now on, that's what it means. After Naaman gets healed of leprosy, he said in determination, from now on, I'm only going to worship the God of Israel, the God of heaven. I'm not worshiping the old gods I used to worship. From now on, by the way, this would probably be a good message for New Year's Eve, amen? But for Christians, we don't have to wait for New Year's Eve to get determined from now on to do something right. Let, Let me just say this. There's a lot of thoughts flood my mind and I don't have them yet categorized or organized. You've had soup before, right? So we'll spell it out. I find it amazing how at this time period they didn't have to go through 20 years of Bible study to get to that place where they say from now on I want to live for God, the God of Israel. This man just got healed of leprosy and he's already determined from now on I'm going to live for God. Wouldn't it be something if people that just get saved determine when they just get saved? From now on, I'm going to live for God. There is a process of sanctification, no doubt about it, but there should be no process of determination. You understand what I'm saying? If somebody gets saved, it would be nice to say, well, I just got saved, but you know what? From now on, I'm going to live for the Lord. Amen? At least work toward it. He said, henceforth, I'm going to worship to no other gods. And let me give you, I got, by the way, I got five points this morning. I'm going to give you number one. I want you to, if you take notes, you want to jot it down. But from now on, here, let's live for God. That's what he's saying. From now on, let's live for God. Paul the Apostle said this way, first, or Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. Let me tell you something. Paul the Apostle was another one, and I know their experiences were different. I mean, to be physically and literally healed of leprosy would be a unique and amazing thing. And Paul the Apostle, to get saved on the Damascus Road in the mighty way that he got saved, he said, look, I know that he's able to keep everything I committed to him against that day. The day Paul got saved, he committed everything to the Lord, even his life, amen? From now on, we ought to live for God. Romans chapter 12, verse number one, Paul said this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He said, what did it mean? Serve God, live God, live for God, amen. First Peter, or sorry, first Quran, or not Chronicles, first Corinthians chapter six, verse 19 and 20. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. Hey, what does that mean? It means we are purchased and we are purposed to live for God. Amen. That's what we need to understand. By the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat, whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. Amen. And so what we learn here is, listen, from henceforth, I should say this, from now on, let's live for God. Let me give you another thought. And I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter number 17, please. Deuteronomy chapter number 17. Henceforth, from now on, let's live for God. Just, just, just keep that thought in mind, if you would. From now on, let's live for God. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. I'm going to just give you a couple other points that really embellish upon the first point. From now on, let's live for God. 
the man got saved, if you will, and determined from that point on to live for God. Some of us have been saved for a long time and maybe we haven't determined to live for God the way that we should. Today's a good day to determine to live for God, amen? From now on, let's live for God. By the way, look at, look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and um, let me see, look at verse number 16. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse number 16. And what would that mean? Here's what it means. Listen, from now on, let's not live for the world. From now on, let's not live for the world. Deuteronomy, what am I doing in Genesis? I am off. I had a tough week this week, folks. Bear with me. I'm in Genesis 17. That is not going to help us today. Genesis chapter 7. No, Deuteronomy 17. Look at verse number 16. We'll get through. We will get through. By the way, the context he's speaking about when you have a king in Israel, here are some things he needs to keep in mind. Verse number 17, neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Uh, am I in the wrong verse? Yep, verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to what? Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. Now look at the next statement. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. God said to, the, to, to when you have a king in Israel, I don't want you to be gone back to, to, to Egypt. Matter of fact, remember, God saved the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt from all their idols and all their gods. And he said, I don't want you going back there for horses. And by the way, I don't want you henceforth sending my people back that way. No more back to Egypt. If you've been saved, you've been saved out of the world. Amen. And if we're going to henceforth live for God, we need to henceforth not go back to the world. Amen. Living like the, or living for the world, for the world, I say. So what, what, what is living for the world? You know, in the most simplest way, I think living for the world is this. First John 2, 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You say, what does it mean to living, living for the world? It's living for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's what we've been saved from, amen? By the way, if you live for the world, you lose your life. You don't gain it. Some of you may remember the example of Lot. Lot in the Old Testament is a great example of a believer who living in Sodom and Gomorrah is like living in the world. When you read chapter 13 of Genesis, we see him looking towards Sodom. We see him leaning towards Sodom. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. And then eventually we see him living in Sodom. And then eventually we see him losing in Sodom. He lost his wife. He lost his children in the world. Amen. From now on, henceforth, let's live for God. Listen, from now on, henceforth, let's not live for the world. Listen, the old simple song, the world behind me. The Lord before me, the world behind me, the Lord before me, the world behind me, the Lord before me. No turning back, no turning back. Children of Israel at one point turned back even in their hearts, and we've got to be careful of that, amen? I like the old song, take the world, but give me Jesus, amen? Listen, so let me give you the next thought. Turn to Ephesians chapter number four, if you would, please. Ephesians chapter number four. Just touching on a few verses with the thought of henceforth. Ephesians, if you would, please, chapter number four. I want you to just see something. 
And so, so, so Naaman said, after getting healed of leprosy, which is a great picture of saying, hey, from now on, henceforth, I'm not, I'm not going to worship any other God but the God of Israel. You and I as believers, if we're saved, we ought to say from now on, I'm not going to live for the world no more. And not only am I not going to live for the world, but look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 17. I want to make this statement. From now on, let's not live like the world. Let's not live like the world. Look at Ephesians 4, verse number 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you what? Henceforth, from now on, walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind and so on. So what is he saying? He's saying to these new believers, these that have been saved out of the world, primarily Gentiles, he's saying, look, from now on, don't live like the Gentiles live. Don't live like the world. Don't live for the world from now on. Don't live like the world from now on. Amen. Romans chapter 12, verse number two. I quoted verse number one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. And then he says in verse number two, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. From henceforth, now that I'm saved, I want to live for God. I don't want to live for the world. I don't want to live like the world. And by the way, so much can be embellished upon on each one of these, which I'm not going to do it. Look at verse number, look at Romans chapter 6, and we'll show you another one. I'm trying to move along very quickly. Romans chapter number 6. I don't have too many more to go. Hang in there. Don't leave me now. Romans chapter number 6. I'm just saying this. If you've been saved like Naaman by way of illustration. From now on, let's live for God. From now on, let's not live for the world. From now on, let's not live like the world. But here's another one from now on. Let me give you the thought. This is going to be point number four. From now on, let's not live in sin. From now on, let's not live in sin. Look at Romans chapter number six. Look at verse number six. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. The essence of what this verse is saying is plain and simple. You and I that have been saved, listen to me. From now on, we don't have to live in sin. We don't have to live in sin. So what does that mean? That means we've been set free. So why don't we have to live in sin? Look, look at verse number one of the same chapter, Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin? By the way, we were dead in sin when we got saved. Now we're dead to sin that we are saved. See, what does that mean? I was dead in sin, Ephesians 2. I was stuck in sin before I got saved, but now that I'm saved, I'm dead to sin, meaning I can't enjoy it anymore. When I was ignorant of God and ignorant of the things of God and ignorant of the fact that I was wrong and it was, when it didn't bother my conscience, I wasn't illuminated, if you will. I lived the way I wanted to live and it didn't really bother me much. Now I'm saved. My eyes are open. I understand. I see the truth and I understand when I do wrong, I'm going against God. I'm going against the word of God. It bothers me. Can't enjoy it no more. Can't enjoy it no more. Look at verse number three. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized or put into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? Newness of life. 
I should live a new life because I'm a new man now. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, creation or creature. Creature, all things are past. All things are becoming new. Amen. Hey, listen. He saved us from the old man. Hang in there. I got, I'm going to try to explain a little more perfectly for you, but look at verse number five. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. By the way, we can walk in the resurrection power of God, the new life power of God. Look at verse number seven. For he that is dead is freed from sin. I want to say this. Listen, from now on, listen, from now on, we don't have to live in sin. Look at verse number 14 of, of Romans 6. For sin shall not have what? Dominion over you. See, now that you're saved, sin does not have to have, it doesn't have to dominate and have dominion over your life anymore. He sets the captives free. Skip down if you would. Look at verse number eight, 17. But God be thanked that you were servants of sin. We were slaves at one time, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, the gospel. We heard the gospel. We believe the gospel. And by the way, the gospel is the universal key that sets people free. Amen. Verse 18, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Thank God. We don't have to be slaves to sin no more. In fact, it's a wonderful thing we could be slaved to righteousness. Look at verse number 22 as we skip down. But now being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit unto holiness and to life everlasting. Amen. Hey, I can be holy now that I'm saved. I couldn't be before I got saved because I've been set free. Now I want you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter number 3. 1 John chapter number 3. I'm almost done. Hang in there. 1 John chapter number 3. Hey, from now on, would to God we'd be like Naaman and determined since I've been saved by the wonderful grace of God. I have eternal life. I'm never going to hell. Because I'm saved, I, from now on, I want to live for God. From now on, I don't want to live for the world. From now on, I don't want to live like the world. From now on, I don't want to live in sin. I don't want to live in sin. By the way, I hope that's your desire. First John chapter number three. I want you to note something. 1 John chapter 3, beginning verse number 5. And you know that he was manifested. What does that mean? God became man. That's Jesus Christ. Why did God become man? You know that he was manifested to take away our sins. By the way, the purpose of Jesus is coming to this earth as a baby. To live a perfect life and to die a death of the cross was that he might take away our sins. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Our sins are gone, folks. If you're saved, your sin is gone. Amen? That's why he came. But let's read on. And, and you know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. By the way, if he had sin, he couldn't take mine away. Look at verse number 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth had not seen him nor known him. Little children, let, let, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus didn't just come to take away my sin. Jesus also came to destroy the works of the devil. By the way, what, 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 in the context, what is the works of the devil keeping me a slave to sin? See, I, you read Ephesians 2. I was a slave to the world, a slave to the flesh, dominated by the devil. 
On the cross, Jesus crushed his head, set me free. I don't have to be a slave to sin no more. I want you to understand something. Let's read on. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse number nine. I think it's the last verse we want to read in this one. Whosoever is born of God, that's born again, doth not commit sin for his seed remaineth in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And let me just say this. People misinterpret this text all the time. All the time. The thought of you cannot sin now that you're saved doesn't mean you're perfect and you can be sinless the rest of your days. That doesn't mean that. If it did, I'd like to meet the person who's ever lived that. Let me tell you what it means. It means what Romans 6 says. You no longer have to live in sin. Hey, it didn't say you'll never fall in sin. It didn't say you'll never slip in sin. You understand? Hey, there's a difference between falling into something and living in something. Let, let me say this. Sheep fall in the mud. But let me tell you what sheep do not. They don't like it. Sheep are clean. They don't like the mud. Let me tell you who else you find in the mud. Pigs. But pigs, it, it, the mud doesn't bother. They enjoy the mud. Why? They wallow in the mud. You see, before salvation, our nature was like, hey, wallowing in the mud, wallowing in the mud. Now we're new creatures in Christ. Now we're sheep, and now we don't like, hey, we don't like falling in it, but we do. But we don't wallow in it and stay there because we can't. You understand that? That's what it's saying, that you can't sin. You can't live in sin when you're a believer. Not no more. It's not going to be the same as before when you got before, before you got saved. Amen. From now on, let's live for God. From now on, uh, turn turn another one more one more portion of scripture. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter five, please. Second Corinthians chapter number five. Now that I'm saved. I need to determine from now on I'm going to live for God. I'm not going to live for the gods I, I, I used to live for. Now that I'm saved, I'm going to live for God. I'm not going to live for the world. I'm not going to live like the world. Hey, and now that I'm saved, I'm not going to live in sin. I'm not going to, but you, you know what? God won't let me anyway. God won't let me anyway. There have been people who tried it who were saved. And God said, I'm not going to let you do that. In fact, I'm going to take you home because of that. And there is a sin unto death. I don't think it's one particular sin. I think it's continuous rebellion. That, I'm, no, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm, I'm not stopping. You can't do it like I used to, right? And let me say this. From now on, let's live for God. Let's not live for the world. Let's not live like the world. Let's not live in sin. And then this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, before I, get, before I look at the verse, from now on, let's not live for self. Let's not live for self. By the way, what I'm actually talking to you about in reality, this is real Christianity. This is real Christianity. Let's not live for self. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would, please, verse number 15. 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 15. And that he died for all. And thank God Jesus died for all. Amen. 
that they which live should not henceforth from now on live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You know what he's saying, right? Hey, as Christians, he died for every one of us. He died for everybody. But you and I that are believers, we know he died for us. In that he died for us, we should not from now on live for ourselves anymore. We ought to live for the one who died for us. My life, my love, I give to thee, thou Lamb of God who died for me. Oh, may I ever faithful be, my Savior and my God. I'll live for him who died for me. How happy then my life will be. I'll live for him who died for me, my Savior and my God. That's what we need to do. We need to live for God. If we're saved and we don't do these things, we're not going to have a happy life. Anything happen. Can I tell you, listen, the fact of the matter is this. We all believe that satisfaction is found in selfishness. If we didn't, we wouldn't be so selfish. I'm serious. We think satisfaction is, is, is all about me. We got it wrong. They had it wrong in the Old Testament when they went back to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple. They got into some opposition and they stopped building it for about 15 to 16 years. During the time they stopped building the temple, they all started focusing on their own homes and their own houses. Haggai the prophet comes on the scene, chapter 1, and he says, Hey, consider your ways. You've stopped working on that house. You're all going to your own house. God's not blessing you. God is chasing it. Consider what's going on. You're not satisfied. You're clothing yourself. You're not warm. You're drinking. You're eating. You're not satisfied. You are being selfish thinking you're finding satisfaction. It's not there. He said, get back to serving God. Get back to God's house and God will be pleased. I'm just telling you, look, it's in me, it's in every one of us to think selfishness is the way that I'm going to find my satisfaction. No, you're not. We're only going to find our satisfaction in doing what God wants us to do. And I'll be honest with you, what God wants us to do usually is in reference to others. Amen? Not only helping the lost, but helping each other. Amen? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. Christ liveth in me in the life that I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Love me and give himself for me. I'm going to quote a verse for you because I don't want you to have to turn there and I'm almost done. The key to all of this, in my opinion, I wish, I'll be honest with you, I wish that like Naaman, the moment I'm healed of leprosy, my, the moment I'm saved, I'm like from now on, that's it, I'm living for God. <laughs> Most of the time, that's not the way it is for people. But I will say this, the key to all of this, in my opinion, is maturity, spiritual growth. I said it last week during Mother's Day message, talking about children. Children are nat naturally selfish. I mean, they're in the nursery. You know, they can have their five toys over here. There's one they're not even playing with. Once they see somebody going after it, if it's their toy, they're going over there for that mine, you know. 
children naturally away. And there are times we can be selfish and childish in our own selves, no doubt about it. Maturity doesn't live for itself, it lives for others. Here's why I say that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 15, it said God gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Now, the apostles and prophets, they, they laid the foundation of the church. Pastors, teachers, evangelists, they're there for the furtherance of the church. He said this, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body. What is he saying? He's saying God gave gifted men for the church. For what purpose? To help the church to mature, to help the church grow. Speaking the truth in love that the church may grow up into him, into Jesus, Christ-likeness. Listen to this verse, which comes right on verse 14 in the context of that, what I just said, that we henceforth be no more children. You see, the ministers minister the word of God when the Word of God does its work, we grow by the Word of God. Desire to sincere look at the Word that you may grow thereby. When the minister preaches the Word and the Word helps us to mature and grow and develop and we become Christ-like, we're no more children. We're mature. We start to grow on. And it's growth that helps us to be more concerned about others the way we ought to be. Here's a verse I'll give you. In closing, not even one amen on that one, oh boy. One day I was listening to somebody preach, and they quoted this verse, and it hit me like never before. Joshua 24, 15, you've probably heard it a thousand times. Joshua 24, 15, I'm not going to quote the whole verse, but let me give you a part of it, ready? Choose you this day whom you will serve. When I heard that, now I understand the context and everything like that, but the application, right? Choose you when? This day. You know, I'm talking today about henceforth from now on. I'm not talking about yesterday. Hey, I blew it yesterday. Anybody else? I blew it yesterday. I like the thought of, you know what? Hey, choose you this day. You know, maybe I haven't been living for God the way that I should in the past. By the blood of Jesus Christ, that's gone. But I can tell you what, from this day, I can now choose. From now on, I want to live for God. Amen? And by the way, tomorrow I can do the same thing. Because that verse is still saying this day every day. Amen? Choose you this day. Jesus loves me. He will stay. Close beside me all the way. Thou hast bled and died for me. I will henceforth live for thee. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. He loves me. He loves you. If you're saved, let's from henceforth live for him. If you're not saved, hey, get saved today and start that henceforth today. Amen. Would you bow with me for prayer as our sister comes to play the keyboard, please? With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you would, sister, would you play that? Jesus loves me, please. 
With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here this morning, you say, Preacher, I'll be honest with you. I know primarily you were talking about Christians living from now on for the Lord. But I'm here this morning, I'll be honest with you, I'm not even sure I'm saved. If you're here this morning, say, Preacher, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I sure would like to know how to be saved. I, I, I don't want to leave this place this morning the same way I came. I want to know how to be saved. Preacher, that's me. Here's my hand. Anybody at all? Preacher, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Here's my hand. Would you pray for me? Anybody at all? Anybody at all? Maybe you're here this morning. You say, Preacher, I am saved. No doubt about it. And my heart is challenged. Maybe as I look back, I haven't been living for God the way that I should as a believer. But you know what? I'm so glad I can choose this day to start to live for God the way that I ought to. Preacher, that's me. I'm a believer. God spoke to my heart. Pray for me that I would do something about what I heard today. Here's my hand. Anybody at all? Amen. Praise the Lord. Hands all over. Why don't we stand to our feet, if you don't mind, as the instrument plays, heads bowed, eyes closed, as the instrument plays. Excuse me.